I always have a first to learn, not just in football, but outside of football. I love learning, I love reading. I say it to my kids all the time. There's so many different types of intelligence. I just try and be myself. Either people are gonna like you or people aren't gonna like you. It's one or the other. I'm not someone who tries to say things to be popular. Um, I'm passionate, but I, I'm respectful. All I wanted to do was coach. I've been coaching and playing throughout my career. Coach's wage in comparison to a playing wage, which I still could have done, is opposite ends of the spectrum. So Sky contacted my agent and said, if he goes into coaching, we'll give him a contract. My very first game covering was Derby away at Reading. Hello, welcome to another edition of the official DCFC podcast powered by Utilita. Today, we're joined by Derby County's assistant manager. He's a man who was born into the game. He notched up over 400 appearances as a player, quickly became one of the most highly rated young coaches in the country. He's an outstanding pundit as well, a family man, a bit of a football geek. I hope he doesn't mind me saying that. (laughs) Uh, And I'm sure he has a very big future ahead of him still in the game. Liam Rossini, welcome. Thank you for doing this uh, as well. Loads of different directions we could sort of go in here. First one, do you ever get bored of of doing the media bits? Because you're always willing, you're always happy to talk. Well, firstly, thank you for having me and thanks for such a kind introduction. It uh, makes you almost blush when you hear someone speak about you in that way. So I appreciate that. More than um, welcome. It's interesting when people ask me about doing things with the media, because as much as I'm aware that this conversation that we have today will go out and people will listen to it or when you're on TV, people are watching you. But I like talking to people and that's the way I see it. Um, whether I'm on camera, whether I'm not on camera, I really enjoy connecting with people, speaking to people and, and learning all the time. So um, no, I, I never get tired of it. Uh, I find conversation a great way. Um, you learn about yourself when you have conversations as well, like we will do today. There'll be something that will come up in our conversation that I probably haven't thought about myself before. And prob- hopefully I win- something happens for you as well. So um, no, I'd never get tired of the media. I'm aware that um, in the job that I do now, the most important thing is the job that I do. And I'm passionate about being the best coach I can be and helping us be the best team that we can be. Um, and I never want to combine the two. Um, this always is my most important thing that I'm doing. And, and in terms of the media, I get asked to do quite a lot, but I try to stay away from it as much as possible because my job is here and it's what I love to do. Interesting what you said there, because it's maybe a, a bit disingenuous on me to describe you as a football geek, because I mean, you are, but you've always struck me as, as someone who you will look outside of football because you will try to learn and grow and, and not just to be focused on the game. If you can borrow something from, from yeah. business, a different sport, you'll do it. Yeah, I think I'm someone who's always, um, I always have a first to learn. Um, this When I was a child, um, they asked my mum to take me out of what you would call a normal school and go to Mensa, um, which was for high-performing young children who were thought a little bit differently. And um, so I was always a little bit different at school. It took them a while. They did a lot of psychological testing on me. Um, when I was five or six years old and they... Actually, like what? What sort of things? So they thought I was backwards at school. Uh, my language was behind. Um, and it was actually when they started doing psychological tests on me when I was five or six, they realized that to fit in with other children, I was actually dumbing myself down, mm-hmm. um, which is quite a complex way for a five or six year old to think. Very sophisticated. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So I've always been kind of academic in my school. I could pick up things. And I got quite... a fast memory I learned things quite quickly um, so and I have a first for knowledge not just in football but outside of football and I believe that everything's connected you can learn from business you can learn from stories you can learn from watching TV you can learn from interactions that we have and you can use it in terms of how you work and what you believe in so for me it's, it's I love learning I love reading um, my wife is from America 
And actually, when I was working with Sky, a lot of the stuff in terms of my presentation to the media was taken from American sports TVs. Uh, when I used to go, there, I used to love the way that they would cover sport, the NFL, the NBA, how open and transparent the, the coverage was, you know, you, in terms of the coaches, the way they speak about the game. Um, so, yeah, I'm always wanting to learn to make myself the best I can be, the best the best coach I can be, the best assistant manager I can be, but more importantly that, the best dad, the best husband, the best person I can be. Loads to pick up on, even from that answer. Um, I'll come back to the US sport thing because that's a bit of a passion of mine as well. Um, this is probably horrifically stereotypical of me, but for someone that, that you've just described, academic, reads, etc., most people won't think footballer when they hear those words. One, is that awful of me to, to say that and to think that. And, and two, I mean, if not, did that make you a bit of an outsider growing up in the game? No, not at all. Um, I think it's a really good uh, question you make. I think there are, we, we, we're speaking about um, the media spotlight and profiles of people, whether you're, you're footballers, whether you're in the royal family, whether you're in all different types of industry, you, you are pigeonholed. And I've met so many intelligent people in football, um, but the media and the way that they, the press portray footballer sometimes I'm working with one of the most intelligent people I've ever met in Wayne Rooney who I don't think gets a fair deal in terms of the way he is actually in terms of the way he's covered in the media um, so there are a lot of extremely intelligent people and intelligence isn't just I say it to my kids all the time there's so many different types of intelligence you can be academic you could be a fantastic people person be empathetic that's a skill and an intelligence in itself and I always believe that every single person on the planet has that one special thing that they're great at. And I think as a coach, the best part about this job is trying to get that special something out of each individual and trying to understand what makes them tick. So in answer to your question, I don't think it's stereotypical. I think it's something that you learn. You learn to pigeonhole people really, really early in your life from what job they do or where they come from or the background or even the color of their skin. And that's something that I really hope changes moving forward in, in the long term. What was it like for you growing up in and around football because obviously your dad was a player your dad was a manager and you've told the story before a couple of times I think about being you know young and sitting in the dugout and thinking about coaching and tactics and all that and all that sort of thing so was it always football for you always always football um so until the age of seven or eight my mum and dad were together and they split up so my early years were the Saturday going with my younger brother Darren who's two years younger than me every Saturday we would go and watch my dad play and it was like a tradition. He was playing for West Ham at the time, then moved to Bristol City when I was a little bit older. But the tradition was to sit down. Um, my dad would always have a big fry up at 11 o'clock in the morning. So I think nutrition's changed now for footballers. And then we would drive across London um, to Upton Park and I would be so excited. And in those days when John Lyle that was the manager, he's an absolute football legend as a manager. I mean, he was all about family. So kids were allowed in the dressing room. Kids were allowed in the gym to warm up 10, 15 minutes before kickoff of, a, of a, what would be now Premier League game. And he would have us in the dressing room. He'd be telling the team and that's, he'd be speaking so to the team. That's so alien to now, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's a different world. You know, in those days when my dad was playing in the late 80s um, and early 80s, the players' lounge was the place to be because fans could be in there. Um, so a lot of my dad's interactions as a, as a child was after a game in the players' lounge. He would speak to the fans and they'd have a pint with the fans and they'd tell him how rubbish he played. Now, sadly, that kind of, that's gone out of the game a little bit, you know, and, and that's something that, I learned, you know, in terms of my upbringing, being around that. And then as I got older, my dad retired from the game. Uh, my mum and dad divorced, but we still moved to Bristol, which was great. And I thank my mum for that. She wanted to keep us close to my, to my dad. 
So every second weekend was me and my brother's time with my dad, which meant football. It meant going to watch games with him. It, it meant being in the dressing room. He was giving a team talk, sitting on a Friday afternoon after school, going over set pieces and what the system was for the team. So it's just been a part of my life. And I think it's something that I love and I'm passionate about. And that's why I'm doing what, what I'm doing now. How did your dad react to that? Because he knew what football was like, the good and the bad. Yeah. So how did he react to you so desperately wanting to make that your life as well? Yeah, I remember I was about 14, 15. I'd been offered um, schoolboy terms by Bristol Rovers and Bristol City. Um, my mum and dad sat me down um, and said to me, Liam, you, you could make it as a footballer and we know how much you love the game, but you could actually do whatever you want in terms of, we spoke about my academic side, but it wasn't even a choice. I already made my mind up and my dad wasn't someone who ever put pressure on me. He would drop me off at games when I was a kid and because he didn't want the other parents to put pressure on me because I was his son, he would say, I need to nip to the shops while you're playing and, and get groceries, but he would go and hide behind a tree because he didn't want to put pressure on me. Did you know, you knew he was I, there? I didn't though? know, I didn't, didn't know he was there. So he, he used to, and he used to say when he, he told me when I was older, um, that when he watched me play, the most important thing is I was safe. He didn't care about how I played. He just wanted me to enjoy it. And he wanted to keep his eye on the coach to make sure it was about enjoyment. That, that was it. We never really spoke about my performance um, or what I needed to improve. He let me work it out for myself. He just wanted to make sure I was happy doing what, what I love to do. And unfortunate for me, I'm, I'm still doing that now. So I'm, I'm really fortunate for that. You had some great moments as a player. Um, played for some big clubs. I asked Curtis Davis this question. <laughs> Is there a club that you have from the playing side hmm. that you have a particular affinity for? I think, um, yeah, I think there's two that stand out for me. Um, Hull, which I played with Curtis, that was a great time. Uh, when I signed for Hull, I was out of contract until November and they couldn't afford to pay me. And the club was, uh, I think, in the relegation zone of the championship and it looked like there was no way future for the club. The club, they were talking about the club going into liquidation, not not even administration, meant the club wouldn't survive. Um, so to go from that and not having a contract to two years later, um, playing the FA Cup final and captaining the first ever game in Europe was, you, you couldn't you couldn't make that up. So that was an unbelievable period in, in, in my career. And then moving to Brighton um, as a football club, Brighton for me is an outstanding it's an outstanding football club in the way that it operates and, and it's, a, it's an outstanding football club in how you build something for the long term. That was a club who didn't have a stadium. I mean, Goldstone Ground, the old Goldstone Ground was a classic stadium. They were playing at, at the Withney, which holds 3,000 people. It's an athletics track. So to be part of its journey from that to the Premier League was, was an amazing, amazing thing for me. And so I'd say out of, out of all the clubs, I would say Brighton is the team that I've had the most affinity for and now the team that I look for most in when I look for the results. It's interesting because both of those stories are, I guess, are a little bit about coming out of adversity yeah. with them. Is that something that appeals to you generally in life? You want to be part of a, of a journey and yeah. growth? I think that's it. I think I've always, um, when I signed for Brighton, I had Premier League offers uh, from big clubs. And um, I went down to Brighton, one, because um, I felt it was a great place for me to bring up my young family. And, but I was worried about the football side because they finished 20th, I think, in the championship when I joined. Um, but as soon as I got there and I saw the thought that had gone into the planning of the training ground and where they wanted to get to and how they were going to do that, the journey was more exciting to me than maybe the financial side or maybe playing in the Premier League. Again. I wanted to, I wanted it to matter. I wanted it to mean something and I wanted to be a part of it. And, and fortunately, um, we had an amazing group of players 
but more importantly, an amazing group of staff who all fought for the same thing. So to be a part of that team and that club getting to the Premier League for the very first time, and they're still in the Premier League now, it kind of meant more to me than kind of money and financial things, which I should maybe as naive of me, it's a short career, uh, but that's just the way I always want to be part of something bigger. And, and that was the reason I came here. Uh, it's the very same reason I want to be part of something that's built in the long term. I look at the young players that are here at the club and if I can help them grow and then fulfill their potential and the club fulfill its potential, that's, that's a bigger picture for me that I really, really enjoy. How much of an influence did your dad have over your playing career or did he stay at arm's length like he did when you were younger? He stayed at, he stayed at arm's length, but he's naturally the biggest part of my motivation. You always want to please your parents. I wanted to please my dad. So, but in taking a backward step, he was still a huge part of, of my life and what I wanted to do. Um, so, yeah, one of the best moments me is actually Wayne played in the game. My very first Premier League appearance was against Man United and we grew up, my dad came over kind of the just before the Windrush generation and it was around the Busby Babes period and the Munich air disaster and my granddad moved over from France at the time, he was originally from West Africa and his team was Man United and my dad's team was Man United so I, I became a Man United fan. So we played the, my debut at Craven Cottage, first ever game in the Premier League, drew 1-1 I got mine of the match, but I'll never forget walking. I don't know if you've ever been to Craven Cottage. The the cottage in the corner, in the corner. is where your, your families would sit. So I'm walking back and the tunnel goes underneath after the game. And I'll never forget my dad's face looking down at me from the cottage, smiling. Bearing in mind, he played for that club. I'm now playing against the team we support in my very first game in the Premier League. And they're the moments that you, that you want to be a footballer for. Would he, I mean... Would he impose or, or was it more of a, you would go to him for advice? He was yeah. there if you needed him, but he wouldn't offer, offer he wouldn't push it on you if you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, except for one time. So you'd always ask me if, if you need anything, if you ever want anything, come to me. Don't ever feel like, there's no such thing as a stupid question. I use that saying all the time. I don't think there's any such thing as a stupid question. If you want to know more, you have to ask the question. The only time where we fell out was when he was managing me at Torquay. Um, that was unbelievable. I was at Fulham. I was a young player and he took me on loan. I was still living with him um, and he dropped me, from, but I wasn't driving yet. So he, he took me, um, he used to take me in and out from training and in the training ground, I was, he was gaffer and outside the training ground, he was dad. So there was one game he took the day before he drives me from our house. We've had breakfast together, driving in, talking about the weather, speaking about my brothers and my sisters and, and everything like that. And I get to the training ground and my dad goes off to the manager's office. I go to get changed. About 10 minutes later, the assistant manager comes in and says, ah, oh, Liam, the, the gaffer wants to see you in front of all the other players. Yeah. So I'm thinking, it's my dad. Like, what, what does he want to see me for? So he calls me and he says, I'm, I'm not playing you tomorrow. These are the reasons you need to rest. I don't think you've been on top form. And I, I was only 18. I had a meltdown. I was raging. But it was his way of saying, I treat you the same as the other players. And, and that was a really good lesson for my coaching in terms of your consistency of how you how you treat people and the message. I think you treat people with respect and they always treat you back with respect. And I'll never forget, my brother was staying down that weekend in Torquay at my dad's house. I come in and my brother knew my dad was going to drop me because my dad said to him, oh, I don't know how I'm going to drop him. Said to my brother, I came in, he said, you're so bad at football, even your dad won't pick you. <laughs> I, wanted to, I wanted to fight him. But it was a great period because we got promoted that season. So it was unbelievable to be promoted from League Two. Um, my dad was a really, really good coach in his own right. And I felt he should have got more opportunities in the game. But to be a part of that journey with him was, was an incredible experience as well. Why didn't he get more opportunities? I think the times were different. We're speaking now 20 years ago. Um, so the job my dad did at Torquay, he played, 
I remember when everyone was speaking about Roberto Martinez and Swansea. Now, if you watch that Torquay team play, the principles were exactly the same. The lowest budget in what is now League Two, playing attacking football. I don't think there was one player over the, eight, um, over the size of six foot tall. It was total football in League Two and everyone said you couldn't do it. And so for my dad to be successful and win games playing that way, which is the way I believe, um, I felt like he would have got more opportunities, but it just didn't happen for him. He went to Brentford at a time where financially they had less than nothing and he wasn't back there. And then after that, didn't get back in. And that's something, again, that drives me and motivates me to try and be a success as a coach and, and as a manager one day. We'll come back to your coaching career in a minute. I wanted to talk about punditry because you yeah. talked about being influenced by what you saw in, in American sports broadcasting, which can be quite different to, to yeah. what we saw over here. How did you get into the punditry side of things? And, and was that something you always wanted to do as well? It was a complete accident, complete accident. So um, towards the end of my career, I was asked by The Guardian to start writing articles for them, um, just about the game, my thoughts on the game and things like that. And from that... A any idea why they picked you? Or? Well, they said I, I always interviewed well with them and they were interested in my ideas about things and they, they wanted someone just to write their thoughts on the game from someone who was currently still playing. So I thought it was a, I said, yeah, I'll give it a go. It wasn't paid for it. It was just something just to try to, again, test yourself, take yourself out of the comfort zone and see what people's reactions to it would be. And then from that, Sky got in contact with, um, with a family friend of mine who'd been in journalism and understood the way it was going. And they said, would you come on the debate? Um, which was a show on Sky that I don't know, it's not still going anymore, but it was more to do with just speaking about the game, all different aspects of the game. So I did that two or three times while I was still playing at Brighton. And then it came to the end of my time at Brighton and I was in a real situation where I, all I wanted to do was coach. I've been coaching and playing throughout my career. And I got to a point where I was 33, 34 and I thought, right, now's the time to stop. But financially, you know, to, to justify a coach's wage in comparison to a playing wage, which, which I still could have done, is two opposite ends of the spectrum. So Sky uh, contacted my agent and said, if he goes into coaching, we'll give him a contract um, to cover the DFL championship games. My very first game covering was Derby away at Reading, and it was Frank's first game. And I will never forget watching Frank run down. It was 1-1. It was the last minute of the game. Ball bounced out to the dugout. Frank ran after the ball caught it, threw it back on. I'm thinking, wow, that's brave because you're away from home. And Tom Lawrence scores the header mm -hmm. from Mason Bennett's cross. Mm -hmm. But it wouldn't have happened if Frank hadn't been so positive in his coaching away from home and, and got the ball back down and thrown it in. So I really enjoyed that year. I covered Derby a lot. I covered the whole championship. I think I covered 500 games, but I was doing two jobs. So I was coaching full-time with Brighton's under 23s and I was doing the punditry side, which was four or five days a week of traveling from London to Brighton and back every day. And with three young children and my wife, it wasn't fair on her. It wasn't fair on the kids. So I needed to make a decision. Um, so this came up and it's been an unbelievable decision to make. What did a day look like for you then when you were doing your <laughs> punditry? Were, were, you, were you physically at a game every night or? Pretty much, yeah. It was, I didn't realize how tired I was until I stopped the routine because under 23 games were on Monday night as well. Mm -hmm. So we would play from Brighton. We play at Man City away, for example. You wouldn't get back until four o'clock in the morning. Then I'd be in at seven o'clock in the morning for training with Brighton's under 23s again. Uh, we always got in early and discussed what we were going to do. So that would finish around four o'clock. Then a car would come and pick me up at 4.30 from the training ground, take me down to the Sky Studios for six o'clock, do a game or the debate or a show, back in the car at half 11, back to Brighton for one o'clock, do it all over again. That, wow. that was for a year. But 
it wasn't tiring because I was really, really enjoying it. I love football. So I was 24 hours a day, seven days a week was football. But what lost out was, was my family. And I needed to make sure, and that's family always comes first. I needed to make sure my wife was okay. My, that I spent time with my kids because they, everyone who has kids, they grow up so quickly. You don't want to miss out. So it, it came to a decision um, where I was going to coach full time. Um, and Brighton offered me a really, really good role at their club, uh, involved in the first team setup. But when I got a call to come here, uh, it just felt like the right thing to do and the right thing for me. And I still think it's completely the right decision. When you were talking right at the start about being influenced by American broadcasters, mm. how would you sort of describe you as a broadcaster then? What's your style? That's a really good question. See, I told you when we started, I said, you're going to ask me things that I'm going to have to think about myself. Um, I just try and be myself. Um, I said to, it's funny, when I had the initial conversations with Sky, I said, I'm not going to be controversial. I'm probably going to speak more tactically than most pundits because that's who I am. That's how I see the game. I just try and be myself. And I think if you're yourself and you're authentic, then either people are going to like you or people aren't going to like you. It's one or the other. Um, I'm not someone who tries to say things to be popular. I don't, I never really had, there's a lot of pundits I feel who are sensationalized things and are really aggressive in the way they put their point across. That's not who I am. Um, I'm passionate, but I, I'm respectful. Do you think they're, do you think they're pushed in that direction in a way that you weren't? Or do you think, it, do you think they do that because they want to, be booked again and they think that's 100%. how they're going to get the job. You, I think you're hitting it on the head. As much as there's a competition in football, there's so many, there's so much competition in football punditry because you know there are 10, 20 people who, who want to do the same thing and it's growing and growing and growing and it's a career in itself. If, you, if you're a good football pundit, you can make a really, really good living now. So I think people are trying to outdo each other sometimes and trying to be more um, controversial than the others and get more clicks on Twitter and on, on um, social media. Um, but that's just not who I am. Um, and if I'm being honest, I'm more comfortable being in a training ground environment, being in a dressing room, being being on the training pitch, working on the game, speaking about my ideas tactically, but actually seeing it happen in front of you and seeing the process behind that is almost, for me, is better than speaking about someone else's tactics and the way someone else plays. So it's just, I think it's just different for every person. Um, but it's it's a competition that the, the media industry is a huge competition, huge. You don't have to name names here because I, I wouldn't want you to, to destroy any relationships, but did you ever, when you were working as a pundit, were you ever pulled up on anything or, or called out by anyone on, on someone? Did you ever get a phone call saying you've said this and I'm not happy <laughs> there was with one, it? There was one time, I, I won't say who it was, but it upset me. Someone I work with um, and someone I have huge respect for still, um, and I gave an honest opinion of what I saw of a game. Wasn't overly critical, um, but sadly for that person involved in the game, they lost their job not long after that. Um, and that felt, I wasn't, I wasn't happy about that because I never want to see anyone lose their job. Did you I, feel guilty? At the time I did, while I was speaking about the game, because again, you have to be yourself and be authentic. Sure. I'm not overly critical about other teams. I know how difficult this job is uh, to coach, to manage, to play. Um, but you can't, you can't lie. You can't lie because people see straight through that. You can't say something's good if it's not good enough. You, so for me, I gave my opinion on where that club were going and where the team was going. And that was a really, really difficult thing for me to see someone who I really respected um, lose their job. And I couldn't defend them at that moment. And But that's something that you know going into it. But also because I knew I wanted to become a coach, I think if you're, say, I'm a pundit and I'm going to stick, and I think you can be more forthright. It's easier. 
because you don't have to have that empathy or respect of other coaches. Me, I was always conscious, well, I'm coaching and I want to one day manage and work at first team level. I need to have, have empathy and understand what a manager and what coaching staff are going through. So for me, it was always to, not to be cautious, but to be respectful in the way that I put my opinion across. Did you speak to them? Did they know? No, I didn't felt? speak to them in person, um, but I knew how they felt through conversations I had with Sky at the time. They sure. they called Sky and, and they felt that there, there was a, not from me, just in general from the media, there was a kind of witch hunt against them. But that's football. If you if you don't win games, I, I know in this situation, I love this football club. I want to do the best I can. But if I'm not doing my job, my job comes comes under scrutiny. That's part of that's part of the job. Do you think? I mean, I feel like I sort of know the answer to this question because I, just because of my personal view on it. But I hear often supporters of, of various clubs say the media's got an agenda or this media outlet has an agenda. They've got yeah. it in for us. In your experience, is that ever true? Have you ever had? an employer from the media side say we're going to stick it to this club today never no that that's that doesn't happen but again i think we all have our own personal preferences mm. we all do uh, whether it's food whether it's drink what you all have whether it's people personalities and that always comes out um i don't think there's a conscious media agenda ever that I, i've never in my time with sky came across anyone who consciously wanted one team to win or one team to lose but people have preferences. They have probably personalities that they probably want to do better and stay in jobs because it's more interesting, it's more exciting. Um, but no, never a conscious media agenda against the club or for a club. That that never happened. Would you like to work on a broadcast of any other sport? You said you watch US sport. Is, is that one? Yeah, I love the NFL. Um, I love the NBA. Um, and I'd love the, the general culture that the way it's so much more transparent in the US. And, and the reason I've got a good understanding of the US um, sporting scene is I was I would go over every year for a long period of time. My wife, Erica, was born in New York. I met her in Orlando. Um, and I just found the way that sport is covered in America is so much more interesting for me. I don't know the first thing. I'm, I'm, a, I'm an armchair fan of the NFL. I try to learn the game and try, but I'm being educated. Constantly, whether it's the NBA, they talk about screens and blocks and set plays and the same in the NFL. They explain the game to you as you're watching it. And I took that from that and tried to put that into when I was covering games is, okay, I could say this player made a mistake for a goal or this manager picked the wrong system, but no, no one really went into why. And so I used to like being on the touchscreen before games and saying what I thought would happen because then people can turn around and, and say, well, he, he took um, a process of a game and he educated us to what could happen and then it happened or it didn't happen, but it gets people actually thinking on a tactical level about the game. And that's what I really, really enjoyed about doing that job. And the feedback I got from Sky is they really enjoyed that and they wanted me to continue because I did things in a different way, presented information and took quite complex things and made them simple for, for the viewer. Cause it's, it's not about me. It's about the viewer understanding and enjoying the game that they're watching. Have you got a team, NFL, NBA? NFL's the Seattle Seahawks. Um, because I love their coach and Pete Carroll's someone who I've read his books. I think he's a real inspiration to me. They call him a player's coach. Mm. A player's coach in America is so normally your, your stereotypical American football coach is that guy, big, strong, shouting, driving the players, you know, and, that, and there's nothing wrong with that. And then Pete Carroll reinvented himself as a coach and they call him a player's coach, which is basically a coach who understands his players and cares about his players. 
Um, and they're into, at Seattle, they're into neuroscience, they're into sleep patterns, they're into understanding their players on a whole different level. Um, so I always want them to win. I really like Russell Wilson, the quarterback, but I just like the ethos that that, that, that club stands for in terms of what they believe. And Pete Carroll's a huge influence on me. Have you been able to do that to a game? I've watched the NFL in, at Wembley. Yeah. I managed to see Tom Brady live, which I was Amazing. delighted about when he played for the Patriots. But I've never been, because of the schedule, I've never been able to go out there, but that's on the bucket list for sure. Sure. Um, is it Pete Carroll? Is he quite outspoken politically? I think generally, yeah. generally yeah, him, in, the, in the States, coaches is, tend to be. There's, there's three more. outstanding coaches. Who, Steve Kerr is another one who played for Michael Jordan's um, Bulls, yeah. the NBA. Now Golden State Warriors coach. Yeah, he's, and he, he's another, he was in media and punditry, went walked straight into coaching and did an outstanding job with Steph Curry and the Golden State Warriors. And there's Greg Popovich as well, who's the San Antonio Spurs NBA head coach. He's been around for years. Why I really respect them again is they're authentic and they're true to what they believe in. They're not as late, they're not afraid to stand up for what they believe in. All three of those coaches, and I think there's a lot we can learn from from American sport. Do you think British coaches can can could do what they do and be as outspoken as they are? I think it's a different culture. I think I think we are in the UK. It's a completely different culture to America. In America, everything's open, everything's accessible. So even you know players' salaries. I, I I never I forget who I think it was Chad Ocho Cinco. He wanted a pay rise, so I think it was him. I may be mistaken. So he wanted a pay rise, right? So he puts on his boots, pay me, and uh, like writes it on his boots, pay me. Americans are a lot more outgoing. Not outgoing in terms, they're a lot more expressive of their emotion. I think in in this country culturally, we're taught to hold things in a little bit and be a little bit more um, sensitive to other people's feelings which makes you less transparent and open. So if you, if you see a game, you speak to a manager after the game, they won a game. Yeah, great three points. You know, players dug in, they gave us 100%. You get those same cliches. And if you lose a game, you're here, we're on to the next game, you know, and, and it's nothing more really than that. So, and if you look at the top coaches now from abroad, so you've got Jurgen Klopp, huge, huge character, huge character, Pep Guardiola, huge character as a person. Mourinho is another one. They're all massive characters who aren't afraid to maybe be a little bit different. And I think we're really fortunate at this club because I think Wayne falls into that category. I think he's he's out of the box um, in a really positive way. I think he, one, is football intelligence, one, as a player, but two, the way he sees the game. But he's fearless and he's not afraid to make proactive decisions. And I think that's a key part of being an, an outstanding manager or an outstanding coach. What does a day look like for you at the moment as, as assistant manager of, of Derby County? You talked about your intense schedule as a, as a pundit coach yeah. at Brighton what are things like now it's more intense now for me mentally I make it more intense for myself I think if you ask the other coaches they'll say the same I mean I'm intense I can't stop thinking about football I can't stop thinking of ideas and that can be a positive thing but it can be a negative thing because you don't switch off and my wife will say to say I don't switch off I'll be at home writing systems into book on the kitchen table or writing a session out or watching a team or so actually 24 hours a day because I'm passionate it's more intense um but a normal day um wake up do the normal get ready be in the training ground for around between quarter past eight and half eight and then from that moment until probably five o'clock in the afternoon it's just non-stop and I love it because you have to be so adaptable you could go in thinking right we're going to work on this and we're going to the session's going to look like this this and this today come in two players are out injured one's ill it, you have to constantly adapt the way that you work to get the maximum out of the day uh, I absolutely love it I just want to be as successful as possible in it and what's your relationship like with Wayne? Because 
already you guys have been through so much together. Yeah. I, it's really weird because I think because this is a podcast and it's going out, you think I'm going to say every, we get on so well and it's great. But I think what's been amazing and not just me and Wayne, but obviously Wayne's the manager, I'm the assistant manager. We're so aligned in what we want to see which I don't think, I think it's really coincidental in a really, really positive way. In terms of style of play or more N than that? More than that. I think the values that we have, how we treat people, the culture that we want to build, um, what how we see a successful team and playing style comes into that. But playing style doesn't happen until you get your culture right and how you get your process and what how, how you treat the players. So for example, we're ones who like to be, we like to be consistent in our message. So for example, our week is set out for the players. The players know on a certain day what the day will look like for them. And what that does, that takes away that gray area for them. We want every player to know their role, to know the system, to know their job, to go out so they don't have to think. They can just go and play. And actually it's worked really, really well because Wayne thinks exactly the same as me. So we have a really, really good understanding. I think we're different characters, but I think that's a positive thing because if you can't have everyone the same, but what you do need to have the same is the same the same ethics and the same values and morals and, and what you want to see on the pitch. And I've absolutely loved working with him in a really, really short space of time. Is it a friendship as well? Yeah. Yeah. I think it, we've all, myself, Wayne, Shay, Justin, uh, Jason, not just that core staff, but I think outside that, Amit the Doc, Adam Store is a huge part of it. Pete and Ben, the analysts, we're trying to make people at this football club, no matter what their role is, feel like, they have a huge part to play in moving the club forward. And I think that's something that, you know, with my, not as experiential as Wayne. Wayne's been at the biggest club in the world at Manchester United. That was built on that kind of culture. And you drive into the stadium at Old Trafford and the stewards' ties are done to perfection. They're proud to represent the football club. And I think Wayne's taken his experience of that and we're trying to translate that here. You know, you, you have a really important part to play in terms of the way that the media here at Derby is, the way we want to get positive messages out to our fans and the wider community. Every single person at this club has to understand how important they are in moving the club forward. Um, Philomena, the tea lady, she's, her job's so important. If, if, if that dining room doesn't have the right atmosphere for the players to come in, feel welcome and enjoy, you're losing a huge part of the training ground. So everyone understands how important they are but what that means then is everyone's accountable to the process and i think we've been in together now for four months hopefully we, we're together for a long time and we can see the benefits of that long term and phil in, in the camp in the canteen is an absolute legend she's by the way. a legend um, i love her yeah she's great um on friendship um a former player said to me a couple of years ago i, I mean he's much more advanced in, in years than you are uh, and you may disagree with with what he said anyway but he, he said to me you're lucky if you come out of football with four or five genuine friends. Mm. Who are your your best friends in the game? In the game. I say one who I don't even see him as a friend. I see him as a brother. Um, I've got a lot of friends in the game, but there's one that stands out for me and that's Bruno um, Sultor at Brighton. Um, it's funny because we played the same position. And so when I first joined the club, there was a little bit of rivalry for that position. But so quickly we became like brothers. Um, he's an outstanding guy he was playing in the Premier League until he was 39 years old and I highly could have kept playing um, and we just clicked um, as people I speak to him probably three four times a week our families are close and again he's someone who has the same values and ethics as me who believes in treating people the right way being honest and sometimes being honest means telling people things they don't want to hear but always to be respectful 
Um, and he's an outstanding guy. And, and I think he's whatever he does, he'll be outstanding at. Can it be difficult to sort of have friends, keep friends in the game? I think because the game is the way it is, it's so short term. I've become really, really close to players. Funny enough, I was, I'm really, really close with Curtis and Tom. But then things have changed in such a short space of time. I'm, I'm now co- was, was coaching them. And, and the dynamic changes. And I think that's football. Football changes so quickly. And, and I don't think people understand sometimes for players, um, you move your family and then you, and your wife might be best friends with another wife in the team. That player moves away to another club. So not only are you, lo- you losing your friend, but your support around you are losing their friends all the time. And I think that's why it's difficult to keep really, really good friends unless you're at a club for a long period of time, which is happening less and less now. You mentioned family. Um, are any of the, the kids going to follow you into football? Continue the, the family tradition, you think? That's a really good question. Um, I just want them to be happy doing what they love doing. Um, my youngest, AJ, loves the game. Absolutely loves the game. But if AJ wants to do something else, then as long as they're happy, that's what I say. And that sounds might sound really cliche and really, but that's what I believe. I just want my children to be happy doing something they enjoy and they're passionate about. Do they think what you do is cool like no they... I'm the most uncool guy in the world to them I'm a geek I'm a football geek they don't want anything to do with me um AJ is now 10 um Leia is 13 and Izzy is 11 and my stepdaughter Nadia is 20 come up 22 and she's gone back to Orlando to work there and I miss her because she was with us from the age of five here um myself and my wife Erica but again that was um, what an experience to be a stepfather to someone else to come to another country that made me such a better person to have, have empathy with a child who, because of my love for my wife and her love for me, it's affected the child's life so, so massively. But it's been great because I never wanted to, I get on really well with Nadia's father um, and now she calls him dad and she calls me dad and I absolutely love it and I love her and I miss her, uh, but I just want her to be happy. So she said she wants to go back to Orlando and my wife was devastated. I was like, right, let's make it happen. What does, what does your life look for you? And she's, she's doing great, which is good for me. Yeah, that's lovely. That's lovely. Um, you must switch off from football sometimes. <laughs> I, I, can't, I just can't believe that you don't, even if it's the off-season, whatever it is. So, so, that's when I'm at my worst. So is there, really? Yeah. E- even in the summer? Summer's worse, because then you're thinking about next season. You're thinking, even as a player, I would sit. My wife would go crazy. We'd be on holiday in a villa somewhere or... We'd be in a hotel room. I'd be sat in the bath or in a jacuzzi or outside in the pool. Right, I can't stop thinking about football. I so, lie in so bed there is it. nothing that if you if you're going to switch off for for an evening or for a, a weekend, yeah. What what are you doing? What are you doing with family, yourself? Family time, family time, meals with my wife, meals with my friends, meals with the kids, taking the kids out to the park, just doing basic, simple stuff. Um, but the thing is, it's not like switching off for me because I'm love it. It's not a job. It's what I actually enjoy. I've, have you watched The Queen's Gambit? Not yet. It's on the list. Brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. I love it. About, che- about the one about chess, Yeah, right? so she's a chess um, champion and she, she's first female to go into it. And it's a great, it's really inspiring. But it was one bit that makes me laugh. She's lying in bed and she looks up at the ceiling and she sees chess moves in the ceiling. But that's literally what I do at home. And my wife was laughing because I've said it to her before we watched, we were watching it together. She burst out laughing because I literally sometimes three o'clock in the morning, I'm looking up at the ceiling. I can't sleep thinking about different systems or a different session or, and I'm not trying to say that makes me, that's just who I am. And I don't think, and I'm going to have to learn to tone it down. But at the moment I'm loving, I'm loving the fact that that's, that's who I am. Uh, Liam, it's been great to spend some time with you and just to, to have a chat. Thank you ever so much for joining us. Cheers. My pleasure. Thank you.